first who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. <clears throat> if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That a, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the Lord that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. May the Lord give us understanding, an open heart, and courage to accept the truth as he reveals. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son and for all that he did and continues to do for us. Father, please fill us all with your Holy Spirit right now. Lord, I pray that you will cleanse me so that I will speak only your words and that everyone here will only hear your voice today. Soften our hearts, Lord. Please, Lord, soften our hearts so we can see your amazing love for all humanity. Father, I pray that you will hide me and that you will lift up Jesus. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love autumn. Anyone here fond of the season of autumn? Oh, yes. For me, it's the colors. It's the colors changing. Yes? Oh, I appreciate that. And it's just, I find it stunning. I just find it simply stunning that the colors change from the beautiful, vibrant greens of summer to the rich, golden brown colors of autumn. And I'm very blessed that outside my classroom, near the front of school where I work, is a lovely garden. And in the quieter moments of the day, <laughs> I enjoy observing the autumn colors unfold and, and change. And one particular tree that catches my eye 
is the horse chestnut tree that's in that garden. And as I watched the colors changing, I also noticed dozens of conkers in their spiky jackets fallen to the ground. And I'm always slightly disappointed that at the end of each school day, hundreds of children just file past, in fact, rush past and ignore these little treasures that are um, on the ground beside them. You see, I was very blessed. I grew up in a time when children played with conkers. They sought out these horse chestnuts and enjoyed playing conkers in the playground. Anyone else have fond memories of that? Of course, absolutely. As children, we were experts in preparing our conkers, and we would sort which ones were going to be the great fighters in the playground competitions, the cheese hunters, and all the others that we could find. So from selecting the conker, to picking the string that we would use to prepare in the hole through the seed. Everything was carefully planned to find that worthy winner. Alas, however, that seems to be a lost pastime. As I said earlier, today's children just seem to walk straight past the conkers and are more absorbed with the screens on their phones than the treasures at their feet. Now, as regrettable as this modern trend might be, the sight of all those conkers on the ground does serve to remind me of the purpose that these seeds actually have and that they must fall to the ground, die, and be transformed into something new, something that becomes far, far greater. Now Jesus uses very same illustration in our passage to explain his mission and how he would be the one that would use the tragedy of his death and use it to bring about the greatest display of love ever. Verse 20 to 22. Now among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. But Philip went in and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So as Daniel mentioned, our passage begins with a group of Greeks who were in Jerusalem to worship at the feast. And they were drawn to Jesus and his ministry. They clearly wanted to find out more about him and his work. Could it be that he was the one who was going to bring them into a saving relationship with God? This is perhaps a question that would have crossed their minds as they approached Philip for an audience with Jesus. Philip was no doubt surprised by the request, I'm sure, and decided to speak with Andrew about it, let somebody else make the decision. I can imagine the prayer that the pair just shrugging their shoulders, thinking, what, what should we do? <laughs> should we just take them to Jesus, they probably said? I don't know. Okay, how about we just go and tell Jesus these Greeks want to meet him first? Okay, we'll let Jesus make the decision ultimately. So they tell Jesus what has happened, but notice Jesus' response in verse 23 to 26. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, at first reading, it seems that Jesus is ignoring completely the request brought to him by Andrew and Philip. 
Instead of saying something along the lines of, wow, how amazing, bring these fine Greek fellows over here and I'll talk to them. No, Jesus instead shares a reflective moment and makes comment about seeds and plants, about life and death, about servants and masters. The question is why? What is he saying here? Well, I believe that the fullest answer to the question of why is found in verse 32. Because it's here in verse 32 that Jesus declares that if he is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all people to himself. To put it another way, if the, groups, if the Greeks truly want to see Jesus, if they truly want to find the full benefit of what he's been sent into the world to do, Jesus' action must be to carry on to the cross and finish the work the Father has given him to complete. In the New Testament, the term Greek is used, of course, to mean actual Greeks, but is also often used to mean everyone who is not Jewish. And I believe that the use of Greek here in the text makes it very clear to, to Jesus' disciples that when Jesus completes the amazing work that the Father has given him, it would allow the whole world, both Jews and non-Jews, to see Jesus for who he truly is, the Savior of the world. It would only be through Jesus' sacrifice that Jews and Gentiles alike would actually come to gain the truest and deepest connection with Jesus that God intended for all. So if Jesus completes his mission, these Greeks who came to meet with Jesus wouldn't just see him as they'd asked. They would in fact come to him in the sense of being drawn by the powerful love of God and drawn into fellowship in a new life in Christ. John's Gospel repeatedly states that God will save the world through the death of Jesus. And the most recent example is in John chapter 11, verses 49 to 53 which reads, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Friends, Jesus' death would be like sowing a seed into the ground. It will appear to be a tragedy in that the seed will be buried and die, but in fact, it will be a triumph. Jesus' dialogue about seeds dying is his way of likening how someone dying will appear as a loss, but in fact, his death will be the greatest gain. A gain that will change everything forever. The death and resurrection of Jesus will be what can only be described as the victory of God's amazing love. This amazing love, a complete divine love that looks sin and death in the face and defeats them by willingly and magnificently laying down his life, not just on behalf of Israel, but for the whole world represented here these Greeks. What an amazing love that Jesus has for his creation. Now you will have noticed, I'm sure, in the previous 11 chapters of John's Gospel, 
Jesus repeatedly tells others that his time has not yet come. John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus tells his mother, Mary, my time has not yet come, when she wanted him to reveal his glory in the, uh, at the wedding. And again in John chapter 7, verse 30, we find nobody arrested Jesus because his time had not yet come. But here, in chapter 12, finally, we've reached the point in John's account that we so long for. Now, finally, Jesus declares that his time has come. A time when his, all of his preparation has been completed. And the greatest event in history, the final moment of ultimate love and perfect deliverance, will take place. Jesus knew that the fact that these Greek foreigners were requesting to see him here in Jerusalem served as a sign that the hour had come for Jesus to be glorified, for him to be lifted up and draw all people. Verse 27 to 31. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Notice here Jesus' response to this realization that his mission to save us is close to fulfillment. Jesus' soul is troubled. We don't often picture Jesus as being troubled, except perhaps, of course, the time in the garden before he was arrested. But here, John reveals our Savior as troubled deep within himself, very being. He'd known the mission that he would complete. He was fully aware of why he had come to earth. But suddenly, in this moment, the full magnitude of why he was here and what he'd come to do caused Jesus to feel trouble in his soul. Jesus, of course, is God. He is the Word that became flesh. He is the perfect expression of the love of the Father. Jesus healed the sick. He turned water into wine. He opened the blind eyes, and he raised Lazarus to life. Yet here he was troubled, deeply troubled, troubled right down in his heart. Jesus, our 100% God and yet 100% human, was troubled. What might he do? Well, many men, when faced with desperate situations, run away. They look to escape, but not Jesus. Praise God, not Jesus. Despite feeling his humanity, he remains resolute and declares, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And I believe that the key to understanding this situation is Jesus' commitment to the glory of the Father. Jesus was totally committed to doing whatever was needed to glorify the Father. Jesus asked God the Father in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And John records Jesus' prayer, and his prayer is answered by what some mistook for thunder. But John knew it to be the voice of God. Father, glorify your name. The Father has glorified his name. All throughout Jesus' life, the Father's name was glorified. 
Jesus' extraordinary public life, his powerful and loving works of righteousness, they all glorify the name of the Father. And we know that Jesus will glorify his Father's name in an inconceivable way as he heads to the cross. Verse 31 tells us that judgment of the world to come and the ruler of this world will be cast out. On the cross, Jesus will defeat Satan, sin, and death. And now the world ruler is going to be thrown out, but it won't look like that to many. Jesus will die a curse and shame death on a cross. And for many looking on, this they would consider to be a defeat. But it wasn't. It was a victory. You see, Jesus was going to overthrow the kingdom of the world led by Satan and replace it with the kingdom of God. And the victory Jesus offered was to be the greatest act of love ever. The greatest act of love ever. He first mentioned this to Nicodemus way back in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. And it was all about him being lifted up exalted on a pole, like the serpent in the wilderness. That's how our God would rescue the world. That's how our loving God, the one true God, the God of extravagant, generous, overwhelming love for his children, would be glorified. How would the Father be glorified? Love. The Father would be glorified through love. Pure, perfect, self-sacrificing love. This would be the way, the very best way, for God's character of love to be revealed, for him to be glorified. I believe it was Billy Graham who once said, the cross shows the seriousness of our sin, but it also shows us the immeasurable love of God. Now the reference, of course, to being lifted up here in chapter 12, and again, previously in chapter 3, all relates to the account in the book of Numbers of God providing healing for the children of Israel. And you can find the story in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And if you haven't read it since I stood up here preaching on John chapter 3, a while back now, then you really must read it again. Okay, now the story in Numbers details how the Israelites got discouraged while being led by God in the desert, and in their unbelief, they complained against Moses for bringing them into the wilderness. They had been rescued from Egypt, but they were complaining. Now they'd already forgotten that it was their own sin that caused them to be there, and they tried to blame Moses for it. As a judgment against them, God sent poisonous serpents into the camp, and people began to die. Now this showed the people that they were the ones in sin. And they came to Moses to confess the sin and ask God's mercy. When Moses prayed for the people, God instructed him to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole so the people could be healed. And I still believe that God was using this event in the story of the children of Israel to teach the people something about faith and how we are saved. It's totally illogical to believe that looking at a bronze serpent could heal you snake bite. But that is exactly what God told them to do because it was an act of faith on their part. It took an act of faith in God's illogical plan for anyone to be healed who wanted to be healed 
and freed of the suffering that they deserved. And in John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus reveals that the serpent on the pole was a foreshadowing of him. The serpent, a symbol of sin and judgment, was lifted up from the earth and put on a tree, which according to Galatians 3.13 was a symbol of a curse. The cursed serpent, lifted up, symbolized Jesus, and now Jesus would be lifted up and will take away sin from anyone who looked at him in faith, just like the Israelites did, and looked faith to the raised serpent in the wilderness to be healed. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul reminds us that Jesus became a curse for us. Although he was blameless and sinless, God made him, who had no sin, to be sin for me, to be sin for us. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless, but he became sin for us. He became sin on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. I'm overwhelmed by that love. I know I don't deserve it. And if we're honest and we reflect on our own lives, we know we don't deserve it either. But Jesus willingly gave himself to save me, and he willingly gave himself to save you, and he willingly gave himself to save all of us. And all we have to do is to respond to that love and surrender our lives to him. Jesus tells us in John chapter 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Friends, how many people will he draw? Some people. Predetermined, small, limited number of people. No. Jesus says he will draw all people to himself. Just as John the Baptist foretold in John chapter 1, verse 29, when he exclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died for you, he died for me, and he died for the whole world. In Romans 3.23, how many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Oh. All have sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's our go-to text when we know where we want to share about who has sinned. All of us have sinned. Not one of us is righteous or worthy. Is there any doubt to the extent of sin in Romans 3.23? No. We know that all have sinned, just like the inspired world tells us. Now, I tend to avoid going into the Greek when I'm preaching. Um, but I feel that today I need to. See, Romans 3.23 Paul uses the exact same word as recorded of Jesus in the Gospel of John here in chapter 12. The Greek word for all is pass, and it means simply that, all. The same word is used in both passages. Friends, Jesus Christ is clear, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The result of the conditional phrase in here coming to pass is that Jesus will draw all people to himself. Now the word draw here in this passage, again, is from the Greek word elkio, which means to draw, to pull, to haul, drag, or attract. Interestingly, it's the same word that is used later in the Gospel of John, 
in chapter 21, verse 6, in a reference to the disciples not being able to haul in their fishing net because it was so full. For those of you who like grammar, I will draw in this passage of John chapter 12, is stated using a future indicative active verb, which simply means I will draw is stated not as a mere possibility, but as a fact. Jesus will draw all people to himself. The word all is hugely significant, as you can tell. The power, the, the, the pull, the draw of the cross is not restricted to just some people. Christ's pull is not limited in any way, shape, or form. It reaches out to everyone. Is that not good news? Oh, it's, it's the best news ever. When Jesus said he would draw all people to himself, I believe him. You see, friends, Jesus died on the cross, a symbol of shame and sin, and the ultimate purpose of him being lifted up was to make salvation available to all who would accept it. The power of the cross is not limited. The Gospels all document Jesus being lifted up from the earth to die on the cross. Jesus fulfilled the condition of being lifted up from the earth. Therefore, his promise of drawing all people to himself applies to each and every person. Jesus Christ shed his blood to pay for the sins of all. And by his crucifixion, Jesus draws all people to himself. God's word promises that all will be drawn to Christ by him being lifted up from the earth. But sadly, and it breaks our heart to know this, not everyone responds to the pull and the draw of the cross. We know that too many resist the Holy Spirit's drawing of the blood in their hearts. The first Christian martyr, the deacon Stephen in Jerusalem, called out the religious leaders for their sin in rejecting Jesus. If you turn to Acts chapter 7, verse 51, You'll see his words to the religious leaders, the ones who should know the truth of our God, the ones who should be sharing the news of God's love. He says to them in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. You resist the Holy Spirit. You. You make a conscious decision to resist the Holy Spirit. Friends, the Holy Spirit is active in the heart of all people, drawing us to Christ. But the Jewish leaders resisted the Holy Spirit, and as a result, they were lost. How many countless more over the years have done the same? How many thousands, millions, have resisted and been lost by their own free will choice? What about you? Would you resist too? Or will you come to Christ and receive the free gift of salvation that he provides for you? In a few minutes, we will end our time together. And many of us will enjoy a hot drink, catch up with friends and family after the service. Some will drink tea, and others will enjoy a coffee. Now, as you're sipping your hot beverage of choice, I want you to remember the simple acronym. 
C O F F E E. Coffee. <laughs> I like to think things easy to remember. C Christ. O offers. F forgiveness. F for. E everyone. E everywhere. Christ offers forgiveness for everyone, everywhere. <laughs> Friends, the wonderful news that Jesus wants us to know is that Christ offers forgiveness for everyone, everywhere. This news is the best news that you can share. I'll make you some more Bible verses. Please make a note of them. Please be like the Bereans and study them for yourself. Okay? I'll, I'll give you the Bible reference. You write down and I'll just quickly read what it says. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Isaiah 53, verse 6. It reads, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. 2 Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Hebrews 2, 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that the one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Friends, at the cross, Jesus made provision of salvation, just like he said he would. He draws all people to himself, and he offers forgiveness for everyone, everywhere. The question we must ask ourselves is, how will we respond? Will we say yes to Jesus and come to him and abide with him? Or will we grieve him and the Holy Spirit and resist him, just like the Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus? Jesus died for them. Jesus died for Judas. Jesus died for all. And Jesus reaches out. Friends, if all means all, then you too can receive the Savior. 
you too can receive eternal life with Jesus, the King of Kings. Friends, if all means all, and you've already received Jesus, then share the good news of Jesus with someone. Ask him to reveal who he wants you to speak to in your everyday life. Seek him and he will show us. He will show us who he wants us to speak to and open up and share with them the good news of Jesus. Why? Because that's what he wants us to do. Jesus wants us to share the good news that he's paid for our sins. Sins that have earned us death. He paid the debt so we don't have to pay it with our lives and with our own deaths. He offers us an opportunity to be free in him. Surely, surely that's the best news ever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, wow, we're just overwhelmed with the love you have for us. We're thankful, Lord, that Jesus glorified you and revealed your immeasurable love to the world by sending your Son to die to save sinners. Father, we ask and pray that you remove anything and everything that hinders us from just bathing in this wonderful news, feeling the love that you have for us, We ask and pray, Lord, that we remove every obstacle in our hearts and minds from appreciating and enjoying and celebrating this love. And we ask and pray, Lord, that for those who are sat here now contemplating you, deciding in their hearts which way to go, Holy Spirit, please speak. Speak to them so they see a vision, a picture of your love, and they recognize their deep, We ask and pray that you will equip us as a body, equip us as a church, to with boldness, filled with your spirit, share the wonderful news of Jesus with all who we need to know. We recognize, Lord, that time is short. Conflicts around the world tell us that the world is in a state of chaos and confusion. We recognize and we pray for the young people that have joined us today, Lord. They have a huge opportunity, Lord, to know you and love you and be a witness for you. Because right now we know the enemy is targeting young people with a vengeance. So we pray for them, Lord, and we ask and pray that you will keep them close to you. Father, we just thank you for this time and I ask and pray that you will just take away any foolish as I have said and that your Holy Spirit will just keep the cause us to remember the message you want us to have in prayer. Your son's precious and holy name, Lord. Amen.